take. Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Lindsay Zients. And I'm El Newbold. The Alachua County Commission will bring the Archer Braid Trail alignment to a final vote next week. Commissioners and county residents are divided over the issue as it proposes either placing the trail through the Hale Plantation community or along Archer and Tower Road. Hill Plantation resident and Alachua County Commissioner for District 4, Susan Baird, says this issue has already been decided in the past. Well, uh, actually, I'm a little disappointed it's being brought up again when we have gone over this uh, meeting after meeting, month after month, and three out of the five commissioners had voted for the current route that's been approved, and that's going down Archer Road and then up Tower Road, and that um, connects the activity centers, it's the most cost-effective, and it's the best route overall. County Commissioner for District 1, Mike Byerly, says the issue needs to be reevaluated because several of the newly elected commissioners ran on a platform which emphasized public transportation. It's being brought to a vote again because we had an election uh, in the interim, and we have two new commissioners, a new county commission, uh, a three-person uh, uh, majority potential in the county commission who all campaigned uh, on the platform of the importance of multimodal transportation. So elections have consequences. This is an issue that's very, very important to people who advocate for walking and cycling in Alachua County. And I'd like the county commission, the new county commission, to have a chance to reconsider before it's too late. Meanwhile, Commissioner Baird thinks the non-Hill Plantation route is less dangerous and better uses taxpayer dollars. Well, the big benefit, one, is that it truly connects activity centers. It goes all the way down Archer, and then it crosses over, and there's only one major crossover versus the new route or the route, the, the hail route, has three cross uh, street crossings, which makes it a little more dangerous um, when you only have one crossing versus three. And, of course, it's uh, at least $600,000 cheaper, and even though it's federal funds and they consider that free money, it's not free money, it's the taxpayer's money, and it's our responsibility to use it most, the most efficient, effective way. However, Commissioner Byerly says placing the trail through Hill Plantation will be using taxpayer dollars to safely connect it to safely connect two major county roads. It uh, provides some uh, bicycle pedestrian path on some major collector roadways that don't currently have them. Uh, there are big gaps where people can't get from the southern portion of Hale Plantation out to Southern Tower Road and to the schools there without having to get into the street. Uh, so the primary benefits are it's some important infrastructure that you know, every major street should have some ability for people to be able to walk a bicycle safely. And it's a chance to do it, again, with Alachua County's share of federal tax dollars. And if we do not uh, put this project uh, on the roads that don't currently have facilities, we're going to lose the money. It's going to go somewhere else to another community. The last vote on this issue ended in favor of the non-Hill Plantation route. However, since several new commissioners have recently been elected, the Hill Plantation route may now pass. The Alachua County Commission will take its final vote on this issue at its December 11th meeting, which will be open to the public. As the holiday season approaches, people everywhere are deciding what their winter plans will be. For thousands of Gator football fans, New Orleans will be the top choice to welcome in the new year. The Florida Gators will be playing in the Sugar Bowl against the Louisville Cardinals on January 2nd. Florida alumni Carolyn Schofield says excitement will be building up in the Crescent City. 
I think they can expect a really great time. Uh, New Orleans is such a welcoming city uh, as far as visitors go. You know, there's so many things to do outside of just watching the football game, and there will be plenty of events with the Sugar Bowl Committee being put on for the game, uh, parades, and, of course, walking through the French Quarter. Even that is, is just a really great time. But the Sugar Bowl will not be the only event drawing in visitors. Schofield says the other New Orleans holiday activities also add to the city's appeal. New Year's Eve always brings a big crowd down to the French Quarter to watch the fireworks and what we call the fleur-de-lis drop. Uh, instead of an orange drop or a ball drop, we have a little fleur-de-lis that comes down to ring in the New Year. And so that always brings a lot of crowds to the quarter. Also, New Orleans is named one of the best places in the country to visit for Christmas time, and a lot of the hotels are just decorated magnificently. It's just beautiful around here. So I think the, the crowd will be already here for all the holiday events, plus the Sugar Bowl, and plus being not too far away from Florida, I think it's going to be just a really great atmosphere. In expectation for the upcoming Sugar Bowl, Schofield comments on her previous experiences at the games. I went when I was at University of Florida. I was in the marching band, so I've been there as a member of the marching band, which is always a good time, although, although we lost that year, and that was not too much fun. Um, but then I went uh, a couple years ago when we played Cincinnati, and that was a really great time, especially being that was Tim Tebow's last game, and we won it by a lot. That was a, a really fun time. And after the game, the whole Gator crowd kind of spilled out into downtown New Orleans. We walked through the French Quarter, and it was just amazing. Schofield hopes there will be a big turnout for this Sugar Bowl game. I think they'll be very excited this year, and I'm hoping that there will be a good uh, showing from both Gators and Louisville fans that everybody will be here. Um, it's going to be a, a great time. Since large crowds are expected, Schofield says the city of New Orleans will take safety procedures to ensure everybody enjoys their holidays as well as the game. Well, with any big event, New Orleans police uh, usually have all of their officers working, and you'll notice, especially in areas where there will be visitors, the tourists, um, the French Quarter around the Superdome, you'll notice uh, an increased police presence throughout the, the weekend uh, between New Year's Eve and the Sugar Bowl. You'll, you'll notice a lot of officers on the streets. With so many events taking place, Schofield encourages everyone to visit the Crescent City. Being now moving to New Orleans about a year and a half ago, I just think it's one of the greatest cities in the country. And if you've never made the trip, you should make the trip. Um, and what better time to go when the best team in the country is going to be playing here, in my opinion. Of course, I'm a little biased. But it's a really great time to come out and see what New Orleans has to offer. Plus, we're going to be gearing up for not only Sugar Bowl, but then pretty soon after that, Mardi Gras, the carnival season's happening. And plus, the Super Bowl's going to be here this year. So there's a lot going on, and it's going to be really exciting. For those who can't make it to New Orleans this New Year's, fans can still take part in the experience by watching the Sugar Bowl game on ESPN at 8.30 p.m. There are no medals given out today, but the United States Olympic Committee was in north-central Florida visiting Newberry's state-of-the-art archery facility and considering it as an official Olympic training site for the 2016 Summer Games in Rio. WUFT's Shane Chernoff was there earlier today and has more. The United States Olympic Committee visited the Easton Newberry Sports Complex on Tuesday to look at the archery facility and potentially make it one of 10 community Olympic development programs in the United States. 
Many local officials were on hand to speak in front of the committee, including Congressman-elect Ted Yoho, who said the Olympic Committee should consider selecting Newberry, saying it would benefit the city greatly. Oh, yeah, it'd be a huge benefit to Newberry. I mean, I can't think of a better place to put it, too. You know, this is Newberry. This is the heart of America. I've been around this area for 33 years. More importantly, I think with having this facility here with the Olympic Training Center, the inspiration will do to our youth and bring people up and show them what they can achieve and become Olympic athletes and gold medal winners. And I think it's, it's going to have a huge effect, and uh, I hope they consider it strongly. This visit was the final step in the USOC's consideration of Newberry as the possible 10th Community Olympic Development Program in the United States. Some of the sites that already exist include places such as Atlanta, Georgia, Chicago, Illinois, and San Antonio, Texas. Stark contrast from the much smaller population of Newberry. USOC Director of Training Sites and Community Partnerships Alicia McConnell also talked about the local athletes and talked about the sophistication of the archery facility itself. Well, first of all, state-of-the-art facility, and you have high-level coaches. You have a multitude of different equipment so that you can have young people all the way up to the highest-level athletes train here. And so you have outdoor, you have indoor. It's, it's a facility that can host youth events, smaller events, and you actually have the capacity to host a World Cup, which so at every level you can host events as well as train athletes at all levels. McConnell complimented the superior level of coaching that the facility has to offer. Easton Newberry Complex head archery coach Robert Turner also commented on the facility, going so far as to say it is one of a kind in the USA and saying the USOC's designation would greatly benefit the facility and the community moving forward. Sure, we've been open for three years and in that time we've really grown. And uh, moving into the future, this, this designation, obtaining that just helps us grow yet again. We, we have a couple of hundred people taking classes on a regular basis. We have, you know, many, many members, many organizations and groups coming in to, to try archery, to shoot with us. So really it's just a matter of engaging more people through archery. After Easton Foundation Outreach Director Doug Ang thanked the USOC for its consideration, officials were invited to use the indoor archery facility, and Congressman-elect Yoho even took a few shots himself. The archery facility does not stand alone as the only state-of-the-art facility in Newberry. Newberry's multi-million dollar baseball field complex, Nations Park, is set to open in March and could further establish Newberry as a top sports tourism destination along with the archery facility that Newberry hopes will give them more notoriety in the sporting community. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Shane Chernoff. Everyone loves holiday shopping, but as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Kaylee Chambers reports, experts say there are many ways to keep your wallet safe this season. The holiday season is here, which means more people may be inclined to pull out their credit cards for shopping. Certified personal finance counselor for Genesis Financial Management, Anthony Caputa, says this is a time of year when people lose control of their spending. This time of season is, is typically when people rack those credit card debts up. Um, with credit cards, there, people have to keep in mind that there's an interest rate, and those interest rates a lot of times are pretty high. When you're using your debit card, you're spending actual money. Um, that, that's your money. So it's, it's easier for you to uh, get in trouble when you use those credit cards. So if you, if you can, use the debit card because that means you're actually spending your, your own money. 
Um, if you can avoid the credit cards, that's always best because of those high interest rates. Both credit and debit card users need to be cautious while out shopping. Caputa says it can be very easy to have your card information stolen. One of the things you want to be careful of, there's these readers that they can actually get your number through your wallet and it, it reads the, the numbers right through your wallet so they don't actually have to take the card. Um, one way to, to protect against that is if you have a wallet or something like that, maybe keep it in your jacket pocket or, or up you know, closer to your body than in your back pocket if you're a guy. If you're a female in your purse, I think you're probably okay because there's a lot of metal and stuff in there. Caputa adds that shoppers also need to be cautious with their spending limits. Only spend what you can, what you have. Um, you know, we all like to buy Christmas presents for loved ones, but you don't want to spend too much. Um, and that's usually where people get in trouble with credit cards because they think they have more than they really do. Um, and then with those high interest rates, the debit, they just never go away. So the, the best thing is to budget. Sit down, work up a budget, figure out how much you actually have to spend, um, and then stay within the confines of that budget. Don't overspend. With tight budgets, students may also be under pressure this holiday season. Caputa says it may not be a bad idea for young people to use credit. It's good for, for younger people to use credit cards to start building credit, but they have to be very careful um, because they're much more prone to overspend than, obviously, older people who have had to deal with debt. But, yeah, it's, it's a good idea to use some credit cards, but you don't want to overspend. Still stay within your budget. There's, I mean, there's a whole uh, host of things I could go into on how to use credit cards properly. Um, because you should use them, but you, you just have to be very careful not to spend more than you can afford to pay off in a, any given month. Caputa adds the most important thing for everyone to do is create a budget before going out to shop for the holidays. He says if you can stay within your budget, you are less likely to get yourself into trouble. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Kaylee Chambers. The United Way of North Central Florida is looking for people interested in becoming IRS certified tax return preparers for the 2013 tax season. As a part of their volunteer income tax assistance program, volunteers from Alachua, Bradford, Dixie, Gilchrist, Levy, <clears throat> and Union Counties Levy and Union Counties are being trained to prepare taxes for low to moderate income families free of charge. The United Way of North Central Florida's communication specialist, Sarah Colson, says volunteers should have some free time. You don't have to have any experience in taxing, um, preparing or ta um, filing taxes. Um, you just basically just have to be available. Um, there is a background screening process that's really short. The VITA tax program has been running for two years, and it has been very successful. Colson says to date they've processed over $1 million in tax returns. In 2010, we um, filed 939 um, returns, and in 2011, we did 992. Um, the total refunds um, last year alone were $1,446,000. She also says this program is beneficial to both the volunteers and the families who use the service. A lot of people don't realize that they have access to the free services like this. Um, people who make a combined household income of 51000 or less can access this free service. Um, also, our volunteers, it's a great thing, too, because they become IRS certified for free. Um, and that's a really good, you know, tool to have. Colson says they also need greeters for the tax preparation sites, and those positions only require limited training. Any person in training 
<clears throat> in-person training courses are being offered from December 3rd to 6th at the University of Florida's Fisher School of Accounting in Gerson Hall, room 122, from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Anyone interested in becoming a tax preparer or a greeter should call Corrine from the United Way at 352-333-0852 for more information. Social media use among younger school students, even in middle school, has skyrocketed over the past couple of years. Sites like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the newest form of social networking, Snapchat, are becoming the choice of communication. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Caitlin McGrath has more on how social media is taking a role in the lives of teens and adolescents. The cafeteria at Gainesville High School was buzzing on Friday afternoon as students gossiped over their lunch. The use of social media is bringing gossiping among adolescents and teens to a new level. With social media increasing in accessibility and variety, the age of social media users is decreasing. This is affecting teens and adolescents not only at home, but also at school and in the classroom. The use of social media is an ongoing issue at Westwood Middle School that administrators are trying to get a handle on. Dean of Students at Westwood Middle School, Karen Bethel, explains how students' social media use at home can carry into the school setting and lead to disputes. What we often see that comes to our office are announcements of it's a lot of threat and intimidation uh, between parties. And it, what it does is it ramps up an audience that want to see a fight once they get to school the next day. And it, you, you have cyberbullying that spills over into the schools. And it, it's just what I call sometimes the devil's playground because it leads to it's it's a large percentage of the source of a lot of problems that we have here in our office the father of a sixth grader at westwood middle school says that there are social media rules in his family those rules being no social media he explains that it is not what his kids may post on social networking sites but what they might be exposed to you know their friends have it we don't allow them to have it just because it put things they can see on it not necessarily what they'll post or anything, but just things they can be exposed to. The issue of gossip and rumors spreading over the web aren't stopping as students progress into high school. Dean of Students at Gainesville High School, Kelly Beckham, says that he deals with similar issues as well and explains how consequences of students' actions involving social media are determined. In many cases, we try to mediate if we catch it early enough. Um, you know, depends on if it you know, develops into a verbal altercation or something of that nature, then obviously, you know, they may receive a consequence. According to a study done at the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, American teens who spend time on social networking sites are at an increased risk of smoking, drinking, and drug use. Bethel says that she sees a correlation between the two at Westwood Middle School and that social media sites serve as a medium to finding out about parties that have such substances at them. If you somebody mentions something about a party or drugs or someone having something or access to it, it is a very quick way to draw attention to that person to hook up to find, you know, more of it. It's also, I've seen instances where it's announced so many words that someone's bringing something to school and and if a lot of people comment on it where they're interested, then, you know, you find out, oh, I used to think so-and-so was so cool. And they get that idea that doing that is, is the cool thing to do. And so I think it plays a, a great role in it. With social networks such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and instant messaging, spreading rumors and gossip is easier than ever. The question is how to stop the inappropriate and sometimes dangerous use of these networks. 
Bethel explains what they are doing at Westwood to teach kids more about these social networking sites to help keep them out of trouble. We do it on a smaller setting. Our counselors uh, will choose a grade level and go to certain classes, like it may be their history classes, and they uh, quite often do uh, discuss those, those type of uh, issues with the, with, the, with students. With social media continuing to advance, issues among teens and adolescents may continue to worsen if action is not taken to keep kids from abusing social networking sites. Keith Teller, also a dean of students at Westwood Middle School, says the biggest issue may be the parents are unaware of what their own children are doing on the Internet. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Caitlin McGrath. The state of Florida agency that handles discrimination cases is coming under fire. Florida Public Radio's Tom Flanagan reports the lawyers who argue cases before the Florida Commission on Human Relations charge the agency is doing a terrible job and should be abolished. First, a little bit of background. The Florida Commission on Human Relations was created way back in 1969 with the passage of Florida's Civil Rights Act. In 1992, that act was amended and the commission given enforcement power when it came to issues such as employment, housing, and lodging discrimination. The commission was also given the job of handling whistleblower cases brought by state and local government employees. Rick Johnson is one of the many lawyers who brings such cases before the commission. He's a member of the National Employment Lawyers Association and co-author of a new study highly critical of the commission. Florida is the only state in the in the 50 that have that kind of provision, and um, it was may, maybe a noble experiment. But it's uh, uh, in 20 years that we've had it, um, it has just uh, been unsuccessful. It um, has done no good and a lot of harm. The provision Johnson refers to is that which funnels all discrimination and public employee whistleblower cases into the commission for pre-vetting before the cases can go to court. Johnson admits that large caseload combined with relentless state budget cutting in recent years hasn't helped. It's certainly a true observation that they are a stepchild agency and that when the dust settles on the legislative appropriations every year, They've been given a big job to do, and they've not been given the budget or the resources to do it with. But Johnson claims his association study shows the commission tossing out many cases without proper consideration. He says there are other cases in which the commission deliberately misguides discrimination victims. They've got this agency that they think is neutral and maybe even meant to be an advocate for their position telling them to take jump change, and they don't know any better, and they do. And then the agency goes uh, out to the legislature and the governor and that we made it so cheap to discriminate that you can just go on doing it. Johnson charges the Florida Commission on Human Relations is heavily biased in favor of the employers who are accused of discrimination. In short, they're working a repeal of the Florida Civil Rights Act without going through the legislature to do it. What's to be done? Johnson says he and the other members of the National Employment Lawyers Association in Florida have a couple of ideas. Our first alternative was simply to abolish the agency because it's, it's beyond the point of being fixable. It may be that a couple of years down the road we might want to start all over again with a, uh, with a new agency. 
If the commission can't be abolished, Johnson says stripping it of its power to keep discrimination and whistleblower cases from going to court might be almost as good. All this concerns Gil Singer, the chair of the 12-member commission that oversees the agency. He declined to be recorded, but he did respond to the employment attorney's charges. It's the commission's solemn duty, Singer says, to determine the merits of each case to keep those without merit from going to court. The commission, Singer says, tries to be fair to everyone and is a valuable resource for employees and employers alike when it comes to fighting discrimination. Finally, Singer says, to do away with the Florida Commission on Human Relations would send the sad message that the state does not consider civil rights to be important. So far, the commission's demise appears to be a long shot. No lawmakers have stepped forward yet to take up the employment attorney's crusade. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Tom Flanagan. At any given time, there are about 800 children up for adoption in Florida. Those are kids whose parents have had their parental rights terminated by a judge. And it's those kids that the state has a hard time trying to place. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports the Department of Children and Families and other groups are working hard to find them forever homes. I was really excited. I'm relieved it's over because it's a really long process. But I was really excited about the adoption. It's a good day for 15-year-old Savannah Walker. She's been living with her grandmother for most of her life. But in April of this year, she went to live with longtime family friend Linda Bedell, who ultimately decided to adopt Savannah after her grandmother died. It's great to do this. Uh, so maybe other people would adopt kids that really need a home. Savannah and Linda are now a family unit. They were two of many families seeking permanent adoptions before Leon County Court. November is National Adoption Month, and there are about 750 more Savannahs still in Florida's foster care system, all hoping for a similarly happy ending. Because usually I will do something, slip-ups, and they'll send me away, but... I did a lot of things here, but I was like, how come I'm not going away? <laughs> so I was like, well, I guess these parents really care. The Department of Children and Families website features stories from children around the state like Sammy, who you just heard from. Erin Gillespie, spokeswoman for the department, says they're always looking for permanent matches and foster parents willing to house children on a temporary basis. And if the children can't be reunified with their parents... A lot of times the foster parents will adopt. And there are several state and local organizations whose sole mission it is to bring willing foster parents together with children who need homes. One of those groups is One Church, One Child. Ari Saylor is the group's executive director, and she says her organization focuses on one group of children in particular, African Americans. It's a national problem, it's a national crisis uh, with disparity and disproportionality of the black children. And as we know, the church is the uh, leader. If you want to get things done, you go to the church. One Church, One Child started in Illinois and was introduced to Florida back in the late 1980s. Today, minority kids make up more than half the children in foster care. According to the Department of Children and Families, in the 2011-2012 fiscal year, 950 black children were adopted compared to more than 2,000 white children. NDCF spokeswoman Erin Gillespie says while it is true African Americans make up a disproportionate majority of kids in the system, it doesn't mean that fewer of them are being adopted. 
the disproportionality of kids in foster care actually leads to more kids being in foster care that are African-American, which technically leads to more kids who are African-American being adopted per capita. So they actually might have a little bit of a higher rate because there are more of them in the system. Where the adoption difficulties really lie, Gillespie says, is when it comes to older kids, sibling groups, and children with disabilities. Gillespie says language barriers have also become an issue recently. We try to be culturally sensitive to the children when we're removing a child from their home. The first place we want to go is a relative. If we're removing from mom or dad, we want a place with grandma. We want a place with aunt and uncle. But for some kids, it's just not possible. Most children are adopted by other family members or in the case of Samantha, who we heard from earlier, close family friends. The state does perform in-depth background checks on prospective foster and adoptive parents, but the rules regarding eligibility have changed in recent years. You don't have to be married. You don't have to own your own home. You do have to be over 21 and financially stable. And adoptions are also open to same-sex couples. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Len Hatter. The suicide of a Kansas City Chiefs football player just days ago has sent shockwaves through the National Football League and the country. According to officials, 25-year-old Javon Belter, Belcher <clears throat> killed his girlfriend on Saturday and then himself leaving behind their three-month-old daughter. The incident raises several questions with many wondering why the death of Belcher's girlfriend has not re- received as much attention as the NFL player. Teresa Beachy is the executive director of Peaceful Paths, a state-certified domestic violence center based in Gainesville. She says the high-profile case generates attention to the athlete, not the woman who is a victim. Well, I think that the, the main thing is that she was the victim. I mean, unfortunately, she had no choice in what happened to her. Um, he was the one in control of the situation in terms of deciding to end her life and ultimately deciding to end his life as well. The situation also brings to light some of the issues that have been brought up within the NFL as far as addressing mental health concerns and domestic violence. Beachy says that football in particular has a propensity for this kind of behavior because the players tend to be the most privileged of the athletes. Power and control is the dynamic that domestic violence is built around. And male privilege is one of those aspects that it feeds upon. So if you're talking about someone who already has a great deal of power and control in their own lives because of their physical status, because of their financial status, and because of their celebrity status as a football player, it gets harder and harder to deny them things. This case also comes at a time close to the holidays. Trends have shown that there is a greater amount of repeated domestic violence cases during this time of the year. However, she says it's not necessarily because there is more violence. I think what we see is that domestic violence is probably reported more um, during certain times of the year because, you know, it. I think people want to keep, they, wanna, they, they don't want to deal with this kind of situation for their kids during a, a holiday situation. And we know that anything that, it, that exacerbates um, stress or increases stress in a relationship can increase the violence in that relationship when it's already present. Domestic violence cases occur all over the United States, but experts say that the numbers for Florida are among the highest. Beachy says that although the number of cases in Florida appear inflated, it's because the state is very good at reporting domestic violence. I know that here in the Tri-County area that we serve, we have an excellent relationship with law enforcement, which leads to higher arrest rates. 
Um, so our numbers may look inflated. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's more domestic violence going on here, but it does mean that we're doing a better job of identifying it and dealing with it. Beachy says anyone who feels threatened or is concerned about their safety should call Peaceful Paths or Law Enforcement Agency. The Dallas Mavericks owner is expected to speak in the University of Florida tonight. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Casey Greenalge reports. UF's accent will be hosting Mark Cuban to speak at the Phillips Center. Cuban is recognized not only as the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, but also one of the faces seen on ABC's Shark Tank every week. Mark is the author of How to Win at the Sport of Business. Chairman of Accent Speakers Bureau, John Holtzman, says students can learn from Cuban's life experiences. He's going to be talking about his background and his experiences and how he became so successful and a little bit possibly about life after becoming so successful. He also says Mark Cuban acquires many traits that a variety of students can identify with. We're always seeking speakers who can appeal to a variety of student groups, and Mark Cuban fits that mold perfectly. He appeals to sports fans, to business students, to people interested in communications or technology. Part of our mission statement is also bringing prominent, controversial, and influential speakers to the university, and he is all three of those things. He's prominent through his work with the Mavericks and through his business ventures, certainly controversial, uh, always on the sideline at basketball games, cheering on the crowd and making his feelings towards the referees known and absolutely influential. With so much wealth, he's able to change lives. He's an angel investor. Uh, that's part of what he does on Shark Tank. And so uh, we thought he fit perfectly what we were trying to do for the university. Tickets will be distributed at 7 p.m. tonight. The program will begin at 8 and will be followed by a Q&A session for the audience. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Casey Greenalge in Gainesville. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm El Newbold. And I'm Lindsay Zions.